Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Our world seems intent on trotting out the same extremist examples of Christianity as either a homophobic religion, think Westboro Baptist Church, or a totally accepting and affirming faith, think Episcopalians. However, these are not the only positions Christians take on this subject. In this talk, Wesley Hill, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity School for Ministry, not only advocates for, but lives out a third way. Hill identifies as gay, while agreeing with the historic view of the church that marriage is only between a man and a woman. Not only that, he wants to help other gay and lesbian people come into Christianity without compromising what the Bible teaches on sexuality or lying to themselves about same-sex attraction. Consequently, he is committed to singleness for life. Now, this is a hard road to walk, but he believes it's the best way forward. Even so, he's concerned about gay Christians getting their needs met for intimacy and friendship within the church. How tragic would it be to heroically sacrifice marriage and parenthood on the altar of biblical faithfulness only to wake up at 65 years old alone, single, isolated, and without meaningful connections to anyone? Hill says the church needs to step up not only by rooting out homophobia, but also building and strengthening friendship bonds between singles and singles as well as singles and families. He concludes, God calls us precisely in saying no to same-sex marriage to say yes to intimacy, yes to Christian community, yes to same-sex friendship, yes to a life of love in the body of Christ. Let's see what you think. Here now is podcast 154, Spiritual Friendship, Celibacy as a Call to Love with Wesley Hill. My title and topic for this afternoon is Spiritual Friendship, and I want to lead us into this topic uh, by describing an experience I had with a friend of mine named Tim. That's not his real name, but uh, just in the interest of... of um, respecting someone's privacy and dignity, I'll call him Tim for today. But T- Tim is a, is a young gay man who, who is a friend of mine. And we recently found ourselves uh, a couple of years ago having lunch, and we decided we would just spend the afternoon together. He, he was at that time wrestling with a lot of questions about his future, uh, questions about where he belonged in the church. And we just said, why don't we take an afternoon together and, and talk about these things? And so we sort of hiked down to, um, in Minneapolis at the time, at Minnehaha Falls, which is this wonderful, beautiful place, and, and sort of had our picnic lunch there. And, and we just gave ourselves a luxurious amount of time to talk and pose questions and, and engage with one another on these issues. And as we talked, we, we found ourselves talking about the traditional historic view of the church on marriage that marriage is male and female coming together uh, for the sake of companionship and procreation and bearing witness to Christ's love for the church. We found ourselves talking about celibacy and why the church has traditionally ruled out uh, same-sex, sexually active partnerships. And it was a fascinating conversation at multiple levels, and we got you know, two hours into it, 
And Tim just said, you know, Wes, I, I feel as though so much of this conversation for me comes down to one basic question and one basic fear. And I asked him what he was describing, and he said, I fear waking up at 60 or 70 years old, having embraced the traditional historic view of, of marriage in the church, and finding myself, because of having embraced it, living a life of singleness in isolation, without having someone to love, without children, and I picture myself living alone in an apartment somewhere, not meaningfully connected to anyone. And he said, I'm just going to name that as my bottom line. That's what I fear. I fear that with your advocating for the traditional view, with your sort of describing it in such compelling terms, you're forcing me to that point where I've, I've named that as my, as my urgent question. And I wonder what you say to that. I bring that up not because that's a unique conversation, but because it's so unbelievably common in my talks with people around these issues. Uh, this is a question that I've heard not only from Tim, but from multiple others like him, men and women, men at every stage of this journey with gay and lesbian questions, with same-sex attraction, wondering if I were to begin to try to imagine myself living within the story that traditional Christianity tells about our bodies, about our sexuality, about marriage, what would that mean for my future? And coming up short at being able to imagine a joyful, hopeful future in which meaningful connection is an integral part of their experience. This is a basic question that people come back to again and again, and I think it's articulated well for us in much of the literature on this topic. Uh, some of this literature you can pick up in our bookstore, as Mark said, but I just I want to direct you to two things I've found myself thinking about over the years. Michael Chabon wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. And one of the characters in this novel, uh, it sort of spans the early decades of the 20th century, one of the characters in this novel is gay. And he sort of gets to the end of the novel and he realizes that he has been trying over and over throughout the years to sort of hide from himself his true sexuality, trying to turn a blind eye to the fact that he's really gay. And he wonders... What is my future? And, and, and Shabon writes this. He says, Clay had no idea of how long his life would one day seem to have gone on, how daily present the absence of love would come to feel. He's just putting his finger there on the distinctive mark of this character is he made peace with his loneliness. He made peace with the absence of someone to love and simply tried to make do. And that's the fear. That's the fear that people have. Uh, one of the fears that people have around this question is, what might it look like to not have the absence of love be daily present to me in the way that it was for Sammy Clay? More personally, I, I wrote an essay a few years ago sort of talking a bit about my own questions about loneliness, my, my own hopes and dreams and also fears surrounding a a hopeful future, and the, the gay Catholic blogger, Andrew Sullivan, sort of picked up on my piece, and I was happy because, of course, this meant more people would notice it, and, and, and he, he quoted a section of it, and then he just, he just included one sentence at the end of his, of his post about my essay. He said, I understand the struggle 
of being gay and attempting to remain sexually abstinent. For 23 years, it was my own. And then love, etc., broke in. Do you hear how he's framing the question that, that either one can embrace love and, and be able to imagine a hopeful future for oneself, be able to imagine a future in which one is connected meaningfully with others, or one can take the path that Wes is obviously attempting to take, which leads to only greater fears and greater isolation. That was the choice as Sullivan saw it at that time. And I think this is behind a lot of the movement in the church for gay marriage. Obviously, there's a discourse of equal rights. There's a discourse of greater honor. But I would argue that much of what animates the conversations among gay Christians and the the movement toward affirming same-sex unions and same-sex marriage in the church is this longing for home, this longing for a place to know that I am meaningfully connected to someone I have someone I can love and be loved by. This opens the possibility of a hopeful future for me in a way that I can't imagine would be open if I were to embrace a more traditional stance. I want to read you a a rather poignant paragraph from a a young evangelical man who who realized he was gay and, and began to wrestle with these things. He wrote on his blog, he says, I've got to say, for being a single man... God has blessed my life in some pretty fantastic ways. I'm surrounded by a lot of amazing people who walk with me daily through life's joys and fears. I'm never bereft of company or something to do. And should I feel overwhelmed, I need but utter the word, and I have the support and comfort of any number of caring friends. Even so, there are times when I abruptly pause as the wind of desire tears through me, a thought, a glimpse, a sharp pain, that life didn't pan out as I'd once dreamed. By now, I had hoped to be married to a woman with a second child on the way. Instead, it seems that the turbulence of coming to terms with a gay orientation stopped me in my tracks. Not just a pothole in the road that slowed me down, but rather a major accident on the highway that incapacitated me for years and perhaps indefinitely. My heart longs for things that often feel so far beyond my reach. I wish to reflect the depths of God's love for me in the deep, welling love for a child of my own. And then he says, I yearn actually to romance a man, shower him with affection, and partner together through life. How I long for family sometimes. Yes, being single is great. I do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want. I can follow my itchy feet to the heights of every 14er Colorado has to offer, explore the four corners of the globe, and yet there will always be this one adventure I long for, the adventure of family, the adventure of being a lover, that of a father, a provider. Again, I don't share that because I think it's unique. I don't, I don't read that because I think it's somehow special or set apart. I think this is a common sentiment among many, many gay and lesbian people that I meet. And their question for us as a church is, what am I to do with this love? Where am I to place the love that I have to give? How am I to find a home? Well, I want to spend the rest of the talk today talking about how 
Christianity offers to every one of us in Christ, every calling that we experience in our, in our journey with Christ involves both a no and a yes. Every Christian who is drawn into the body of Christ, drawn into the family of God, is confronted with a no, the demand for self-denial, and is offered the call of yes to love in the church. Well, first, the no. I think the reason that many of us find ourselves unable to affirm same-sex marriage in the church is because not of a few isolated proof texts in Scripture, but because of the sweep of the story that Scripture tells of creation and redemption. Stanley Hauerwas writes about Christian, Christian callings, Christian ethics being in line with the grain of the universe. And that's, I think, a very biblical way of thinking about our Christian calling. We were created by God, male and female. And this, this differentiation is hallowed. It's, it's pointed toward fruitfulness. The, the creation of male and female is described in Genesis 1. This is what it means to be in the image of God. And then the blessing is given of procreation. Be fruitful and multiply. And in the narrative of Genesis 2, the second creation account, uh, there's, there's the wonderful emphasis on the sameness of the partners. The man and the woman are gloriously alike, unlike the animals. Among the animals, there's not a suitable helper found for Adam. But, but nonetheless, God, God doesn't leave him in his loneliness, but creates not another creature identical, not another creature from the ground, but a, but a, a, a suitable helper, connecto in the Hebrew, suitable, someone who is equal and yet opposite, the same and yet different. And this wonderful equality and this wonderful difference is a kind of unity in distinction that's hallowed. But of course, all that goes wrong because the very next chapter of the story is Genesis 3 and the utter disruption and the utter decay of this, of this harmonious relationship that God designed. And so you might think that as God determines not to leave his creation in sin and death, as he determines to redeem the world in Jesus Christ, and Jesus announces the utter strange, wonderful newness of the kingdom of God, the heavens being rent open, and the, and the new age to come dawning with his ministry, you might expect that the theme would be the superseding of the old creation, the moving beyond the original creation to something better. But tellingly, I think, when Jesus is asked about marriage, when he's asked about divorce, he doesn't simply give another saying about the kingdom of God. He actually quotes the original description of the original creation. And he, very interestingly, fuses together both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the first and second creation accounts, with an emphasis on male and female coming together and becoming one flesh. Both unity, both sameness, and glorious difference are emphasized in Jesus' answer about marriage. And I think the calling of all of us as Christians is to learn to see ourselves in light of that story that Scripture tells. There's a wonderful line from George Lindbeck about how our calling as believers is to learn the Scriptures of Israel and the story of Jesus so well that we begin to narrate our lives in its terms rather than the other way around. And so the calling I felt as a, as a young gay Christian was, how do, I, how do I seek to inhabit this story? How do I seek to submit the contours of my life to this overarching narrative and begin to take my bearings from that? 
And what I found as I did so is this emphasis on no. There's a certain constraint that the biblical story puts on our natural impulses. Left to our own inclinations, left to our own longings, we might come up with a different picture. And yet part of the Christian calling is to submit, as it were, to, to, to the story that's compelling my allegiance. If I seek to know this Christ and live with this Christ, I'm to begin to conform my life to that rather than the other way around. There's a great line from Alistair McIntyre that he says, I can only answer the question what I am to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself inhabiting. In other words, I can't simply uh, take, those, take those stories as a license to, to pursue what I, what I might most want or most fear in, in my own devising, but my calling is to ask what am I to do and to take my bearings from the narrative that I've been plunged into in baptism. That's the calling. But wonderfully, beautifully, a Christian calling never ends there. The Christian story is never only about a no. It's never only about constraint. It's never primarily about constraint. It's about what we're called to. Listen to the Orthodox theologian Paul F. Dokimov. He says, in all the cases of deprivation, Scripture speaks of, grace offers a gift. Out of a negative renunciation, it creates a positive vocation. To renounce one thing means to be totally consecrated to another, that this very renunciation allows us to realize. It is not a mutilation at all, but a remaking. I want to talk for a few minutes about that, and I want to do so by way of uh, entering into some of the story of, of Mark chapter 10. If you, if you happen to have a Bible with you and want to follow along, uh, I'll, be, I'll be looking at Mark chapter 10 verses 23 through 31. But if you don't, I'll, I'll read the relevant portions and you can just listen. This is the scene. Th- these verses, verses 23 through 31, are immediately following the story of the rich young man. He's come to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's the exchange about selling possessions and, and divesting himself. And uh, he, he goes away, verse 22, he goes away sorrowful because he's in love with his possessions. And Jesus looks at him and says to his disciples, so the, the, the young man has is, is, is wandered off the stage, and Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 23 and says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, presumably because uh, knowing the Old Testament well, you know that there are blessings for obedience, and there are curses for disobedience. So this man who has much wealth, a sort of natural way to read his story is that he's terribly blessed by God. He's wonderfully uh, exhibiting all the signs of being under God's favor and care. And yet Jesus' interpretation of his condition is that he is in desperate need. And this begins to upend the categories of the disciples. And, And now they find themselves wondering, if it's so difficult for those who have wealth what would, be, what would be our hope? What would be our prospects? And, and you find Peter. Uh, we heard a wonderful meditation on Peter this morning. Here he is again in our afternoon talk. Peter, verse 28, hoping presumably to shore up his own, his own 
expectations and chances of salvation. He says he wants to distinguish himself from the rich young man. And so he says, verse 28, See, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. Sort of saying, Jesus, please don't forget when you talk about the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God, I have done what the rich young man failed to do. I have made sacrifices. I have embraced what we might call the vocation of self-denial. I've embraced the no very well. Do you notice that, Jesus? And then Jesus says, verse 29, perhaps entirely unexpectedly to Peter, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In other words, he's trying to reconfigure Peter's perspective. Peter's notion of discipleship before Jesus begins this section is, I must indicate to Jesus the depth of my allegiance to the no of discipleship. I must exhibit for Jesus how much I've been willing to forsake. And Jesus very bluntly says, actually, the Christian life is not focused on your renunciation. Your sacrifice is not center stage because what one finds when one enters the kingdom of God is a wealth that is so overwhelming that it makes your sacrifice pale in comparison. You have, you've given up natural kinship ties in order to follow me. You've left your fishing nets on the shore, but what you find when you enter into the life of discipleship is a life of new family, new spiritual brothers and mothers and sisters. You are surrounded by a new community in which you now take your bearings, and that means that any no that you embrace must be relativized in light of God's greater yes to you in Jesus Christ in the kingdom. And of course, he doesn't leave out persecutions, but he points ahead to the eschaton, in the age to come, eternal life. I have to say, this has been one of those orienting passages for me as I think about my life of discipleship, as I think about the lives of my gay and lesbian friends who are embracing uh, a, a path of, of, of not, not entering into the kind of unions that seem on the face of them, to be the most fulfilling to them. This has been one of those passages that reminds me, if we focus on what we're denying, if that becomes the, the primary story of our discipleship, we miss something utterly crucial in Jesus' economy. We miss something utterly central to Jesus' way of thinking about the kingdom, and that is that, that we are called precisely to love in the kingdom. We are called precisely to love. And yes, it may not be what we had hoped when we signed up. It may not be what we most feel naturally inclined, uh, how we most feel naturally inclined to love, but we are called to relationship. We are called to communion. We are called to intimacy with others. And I think one of the key things for me in this journey has been realizing that this is not just a generic community that I'm called to. I'm not called to forsake 
a same-sex sexually active partnership and embrace instead a kind of amorphous, faceless ideal of community, as if that could somehow answer the longing for my heart. But I'm called precisely to individual relationships within the body of Christ that I've come to call spiritual friendship. There might be other ways of framing this, but this is the, this is the language that I've sort of adopted. And, and I want to introduce you to, to, in the minutes we have left, to one of the people who's, who's helped me think about this. Um, a very eccentric and wonderful Russian theologian, uh, Russian philosopher, Pavel Florinsky. Uh, Florinsky wrote a series of 12 letters uh, sort of letters of apologetics, and they, they run to something like, you know, 800 pages in the, in the printed version, so letters used loosely. Uh, but, but Florensky has a chapter on friendship here, and he says, many Christians make the mistake of thinking that when they embrace this yes of Christian discipleship, when they embrace Christian community, they're called to, in a sense, deny the longings that they feel for especially intimate communion with a few people and the intimacy that can only come from those kind of relationships, that they're called to somehow sideline that and instead embrace a more universal form of love, that they're called to embrace their community, capital C, or their church family, but they're called to sort of sideline or set to one side the relationships of, of, of depth that, that, that in which stories are exchanged and narratives are known. And Florensky says that's actually not the most helpful way to think about the Christian calling of community. And instead, he explores this theme of friendship. Listen to what he says about the church. He says, for each member of the church, the friend of a brother in Christ must be the friend of a brother. In other words, I'm not, I'm not free in the community of Christians to select the Christians that I especially like and distance myself from those I don't. The friend of a brother must be the friend of a brother. We are all baptized. We share one Holy Spirit. We're called to love one another. But only the friend of this particular brother, not the friend of everyone in the Christian community, there must necessarily be a force that orders and maintains the individuality of the union of friends. Now, this is the kind of language that's made a lot of Christians nervous in Christian history because it seems to sort of elevate a kind of private relationship at the expense of a more universal kind of benevolence in which we love one another. But Florinsky's argument is that it's actually in friendship it's actually in these intimate relationships of two or three or four that I begin to unlearn the habits of selfishness in such a way that I am more prepared to love the world at large, to love the body of Christ at large, and to love the, the wider world at large. So, so listen to, this is Ben Myers summarizing Florensky's vision. He says, the church must be understood as a community of siblings, brothers and sisters, Friendship is the molecular bond by which the church is held together, the community molecule, and that's a quote from Florensky. The church is not ultimately reducible to individuals, but to pairs of friends. Florensky compares this to the way the family unit is the molecule that holds the state together. I want to submit that this is something that might help us reframe 
the kinds of questions we ask one another surrounding gay and lesbian relationships in the church. It's my conviction that we, we must maintain the biblical teaching that marriage is between male and female. It's male and female coming together for the sake of new life in the world, and it's something that the New Testament honors. Jesus honors it in Matthew 19. Paul honors it, Ephesians 5. It becomes an icon of Christ in the church. This is something we do well to, to celebrate and, and honor in our life together. But if we began also to elevate the love of friendship, and recognize friendship as, in fact, the molecule that holds this organism called the church together, how might that begin to reframe our imaginations and allow us to better approach the kind of questions that gay and lesbian people are asking of us about where can I love, how can I love in the body of of Christ? Listen to Paul F. Dokimov again. He says, celibacy in the Christian tradition has not in the least prevented certain great Christian figures from displaying communion of soul in an activity together. And then he begins to mention those whom Florensky calls pairs of friends, people like St. John Chrysostom and Olympias the deaconess. Such friendships, F. Dokimov continues, are not even contrary to the monastic state. They can produce a large offspring, spiritual children, who follow their own vocation of witnessing. Well, I want to conclude today with just a few thoughts on what it might look like for gay Christians to find themselves called by us in our parishes, in our, in our communities, in our, in our wider networks. What would it look like for us to begin to speak to our gay and lesbian neighbors who are in Christ in these terms? What would it look like to be, try to elevate the, the practice of friendship and commend it, especially to those among us who find themselves called to celibacy or who find themselves wrestling with this question of where I might find love? I would just want to offer a few suggestions. I want to suggest first that it might look like beginning to think about ways in which we might more publicly or semi-publicly honor friendships, particular friendships among us. There's a long history that I was simply unaware of before I started to wrestle with these questions of same-sex friendship being recognized, being celebrated, being written about, being honored in the church. A book like Alan Bray's The Friend talks a lot about this, but there are many other sources. There's, there are liturgical ways of doing this, and these are, these are resources that are simply there in our tradition waiting to be rediscovered. This can take something as simple as the form of of talking in the small groups, in the Bible studies, in the parish communities that you find yourself in, about friendships that you have noticed in your Christian life yourself that have meant a lot to you. Talk about the relatives you've seen who've practiced it well. Look for ways to make it more publicly visible, to make it honored. So how might we begin to respect and publicly celebrate friendships among us? Secondly, I think thinking along these lines would invite us to ask questions about how we might begin to draw single people, celibate people, gay and lesbian people into families. There was a very sort of significant moment in my life when uh, I was asked to be a godfather for the first time. I was living in England. And um, a friend of mine who was a graduate of this institution uh, had become a, a very close friend. And I was 
sort of washing dishes at my house one night, and I received his phone call, and, and their, their daughter had, was a few weeks old, and they said, Wes, we would like to ask you to become uh, Callie's godfather. And it was the first time I'd been asked that. I've, I've now become a godfather since then. But it was, it was a deeply meaningful moment to me precisely because my friend followed up the request by saying, this is not simply about us wanting you to help us nurture Callie in the Christian faith. It's certainly about that. It's about you standing and speaking uh, the affirmations of faith on Callie's behalf. But it's also about us wanting to draw you into our family in a kinship bond. It's about us wanting to, to name and celebrate the relationship that we feel to you and that we want to strengthen. What might it look like to begin to ask that kind of question in the church as we talk about gay and lesbian people among us and talk with gay and lesbian people among us? How might we begin to draw those who long for love, who long for family, into families? Not just occasionally, not just when it feels good, but, but for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, with those kind of publicly vowed uh, relationships. And thirdly, I think we might begin to explore the particular ways that gay and lesbian Christian sexuality might make them uniquely sensitive and gifted for nurturing same-sex friendships in our parish communities. Mark Yarhouse mentioned last night this beautiful, very interesting letter that C.S. Lewis wrote to the author Sheldon Van Auken. Van Auken was a, a, a happy pagan, as he describes himself, who went off to Oxford. And the last thing he expected was that he would convert to Christianity, but so it happened. And he found himself uh, leading a Bible study with his wife in Oxford for other new, newly converted Christians. And he said, you know, here I was, a new Christian, sort of not well catechized. I didn't know the history of my own faith, didn't know the sources, and suddenly I find myself with other new believers asking me questions I don't know how to answer. And one of them was, how ought we to think about homosexuality in the church? And so Van Alken wrote to Lewis, and Mark read for us a portion of that letter last night about, about every disability. That's the way Lewis thought about homosexuality in terms of a creation-fall-redemption framework, is that there, there, is a, there is a creation and all of us have fallen away from it in various ways. So we're all, in a sense, disabled. It's not the special prerogative of, of gay and lesbian people. This is something that we all share. And he says, every disability conceals a vocation if only we can find it. And then there was the part after this that, that, that was not quoted last night, but I want to read you this. Lewis goes on in his letter to Van Alken, and he says, a certain pious homosexual man who had written to him in the past believed that his necessity could be turned to spiritual gain, that there were certain kinds of sympathy and understanding, a certain social role which only he could play. And Lewis goes on to commend that to Van Alken as one possible way of thinking about the gay and lesbian Christians who've begun to attend his Bible study. How might you, Sheldon, begin to help them to ask what particular role their particular constitution, their, their particular mix of the fall, as Francis Schaeffer used to call it, how might their particular constitution constitute under grace in God's economy of redemption a gifting, a particular sensitivity that they might employ in the body of Christ, 
precisely as a way of channeling and offering to God their sexuality? Could they, in fact, be especially gifted for nurturing friendship? Our culture tells us that the best way to interpret same-sex desire is to interpret it as a calling to a sexually active partnership, a same-sex marriage. But what might it look like to begin to imagine ways in which precisely as a celibate person, as someone who's denying oneself that sort of culturally acceptable story, how might one still see one's sexuality as a call and a gifting and a sensitivity and a sympathy for friendship? in the body of Christ. That's the possibility that Lewis's letter opens up. And I want to suggest that that might be one further way of, of, of thinking about these questions of how we love in the body of Christ. So to go back to that scene uh, in Minnesota with my friend Tim, I said, Tim, I, I don't feel that I can promise you or myself or anyone, on, anyone else the particular kind of happy future we've always imagined for ourselves. I don't think I can make promises that children will necessarily be in your life. I don't think I can make promises that one particular person will be there to sort of sit with you on your, on your, on your deathbed in your old age. But what I think I can say is that God calls you and me, even if we embrace, as I think we should, the traditional story of marriage and sexuality that the Christian tradition tells. God calls us precisely in saying no to same-sex marriage to say yes to intimacy, yes to Christian community, yes to same-sex friendship, yes to a life of love in the body of Christ. And that's what I especially want to commend today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in and for listening to this. I've realized that for some of you, this might have been a real stretch where you hadn't considered this possibility before. And for others, you feel that Hill did not go nearly far enough. Well, whatever your perspective is, if you'd like to drop a comment, come on to restitutio.org and just search for 154 Spiritual Friendship with Wesley Hill, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Also, I wanted to thank Professor Hill himself for giving me permission to play this out on Restitutio and point you to some of his other resources. He has a website called spiritualfriendship.org. I also have links to his faculty page as well as his book, which is called Washed and Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality, which is available on Amazon. Also, if you are interested in this overall subject of Christians who choose singleness, take a listen to interview 18 with Beckett Cook, who was a fashion set designer in L.A. who embraced celibacy in order to follow Christ. Uh, And he says it's worth it. Also, you can search on YouTube for testimonies by Christopher Yuan, Rosaria Butterfield, Jackie Hill, and Sam Albury, just to name a few other emerging Christian voices who are saying we don't have to choose between total acceptance of same-sex marriage on the one hand or uh, total exclusion of anyone who experiences same-sex attraction on the other, that there is a third way. Furthermore, take a look at podcasts 82 and 83, where I cover some of the biblical boundaries on this whole subject, as well as answer some of the questions. Actually, I really depend a lot on Sam Albury to answer some of the questions that gay and lesbian Christians have. So take a look at all that if this subject interests you. Before closing out, I I did want to just respond a little bit to the feedback that I've received on recent episodes. 
First up, I had a bunch of comments on interview 42, which I, I realized was going to be a spicy episode, but it was called Christian Solidarity versus Polarizing Politics, an interview I did with Ken LaProd. And essentially the point we were making there is that Christians shouldn't give in to polarization and that they shouldn't think that it's our unique calling to take over the various governments of the world. Instead, our hope needs to remain in Christ's future coming kingdom, and we want to live consistent with that in the present age. And uh, there can be some limited involvement, but we always want to recognize the reality of Christians in other countries who are many times at odds with the United States of America for various reasons. So essentially our position here was to quash uh, polarizing political statements, and uh, we had a whole bunch of feedback on that. And uh, sadly, the comments ended up in essentially polarizing conversation where we had one person taking the Republican side, one person taking the Democrat side, and they were they were arguing it out. Um, I, I did want to address one comment by John, who writes, Why does every political podcast on here sound like an ad for the Democratic Party? This man is a leftist through and through, getting all of his talking points from the left. Jesus never encouraged the use of the power of the government to take from the rich against their will and give it to others. He talks about obeying the laws of the land, then defends those who, as their first act of entering the country, break the law. Trump's point was that people not entering the country in a legal manner are much more likely to be a criminal element. Is that really so unreasonable? This guy is talking about a statement about one type of immigrant, illegal border jumpers, and applying it to all immigration, just like all Christians hate gay people. Your New York upbringing shines through, Sean. Well, John, first off, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this. I I hope you did listen to it, uh, to be honest, because it seems like you were misunderstanding what this episode was all about. Now, once again, if you haven't heard this one yet, go back and listen to Interview 42, Christian Solidarity versus Polarizing Politics, and see if if this is an ad for the Democratic Party. Uh, certainly not. Uh, Ken is very careful not to endorse or condemn either specific party. He was He was very circumspect in his language about Trump, and he was very focused on advocating for Christians not getting sucked into this polarizing us versus them mentality that is characteristic of of our age. Furthermore, John, just to point out, I was not raised a Democrat. I realized that from the outside, New York is a monolith. It's a blue state, right? Well, actually, on the inside, it's a different story, okay? So there there are lots of different political positions, and... um, I'm just trying to be faithful to the to the scriptures. I don't buy into the whole party system. I recognize that there are there are good Democrats, there are good Republicans, there are good independents and libertarians, and I'm sure there are plenty of other views that have Christians in them. And that's exactly the point. The point is that whether you think this nation should govern itself using uh, a particular strategy for economics or for border patrol. If you're naming the name of Christ, if you're saying that you're a follower, that you believe in the gospel message, he died for your sins, he's coming back to establish the kingdom, that's your hope? Then look, whether you and I disagree on what to do with illegal immigrants has to be relativized in light of the larger 
more important priority that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, we can disagree on these things and still our our family connection needs to be stronger than that. So please don't think that I'm advocating for a uh, political party. What I'm trying to do in this episode is very simply to encourage Christian solidarity instead of polarizing politics. That's the the name of the episode. So, hey, take a look at that. There are a lot of other comments on both sides of the aisle, uh, I would say. Yeah, on both sides of the aisle here. And Ken LaProd also uh, responded back a little bit on that episode. In addition, for episode 151, God of Wonder, uh, Kenny Wellenberg writes, Thanks for this great teaching, Sean. It really spoke to me. It's utterly astounding to behold the magnificent beauty that is unnecessarily spread throughout nature. I find it compelling evidence of God's power and creativity. Whenever I truly admire the complexities of how the earth works, I am led to just praise God for everything he has done. As I listened to this teaching, I couldn't help but remember the words of the old hymn, How Great Thou Art. I've been listening to your podcast for last year and have listened to every episode so far. Oh, bless your heart, Kenny. And have been truly blessed by the variety of content as well as the honest and open discussions. Please keep up the great work. God bless. Thank you, Kenny, for uh, that very kind endorsement there. On this particular message, the God of wonder, this is a perspective that we need to be reminded of over and over. This is uh, Podcast 151, God of wonder, that when we look at the creation, whether whether it's in the fall or the winter or the spring or the summer, that what we see out there is a reflection of God's glory, that, that his design bespeaks his creative genius. And to not allow ourselves to allow the aesthetic to terminate in the flower or the tree or the sunset, but see it all the way through to the one who made the flower, the tree, or the sunset. And I strive to cultivate this mindset in myself, but I need to be reminded of it uh, from time to time because we just get so worn down by the, the, the routines of life to forget to stop and smell the roses, right? Uh, also on episode 152, just one last comment here, we had uh, a whole bunch of feedback to John Walton's very fascinating uh, presentation, Why Didn't God Call the Light Light? And uh, we had a number of people writing in. Mike Watson says, wow, really interesting and thought-provoking. Many times as a child, I imagine God creating time, and the backpedal from Genesis 5.1 shed some light on the subject, lol. It works because he, God, set it up to work, and he is behind its operations. Not the creation, but the function. I'll be getting his book ASAP. Mike, I'd be curious to see what you think about the book once you do get it. I I read it through, and I was left, I think, with more questions than answers, uh, at least uh, on a first first time through. A number of other folks wrote, uh, for example, Sean Holbrook says, thanks for posting this. It was an intriguing take that'll take more research. I found his books already in an ebook format for download from my local library, so I've got them on the back burner. Always great to hear some different views that claim to scour the entire Bible for more consistent definitions of terms. And then another number of other folks have written in as well. So if you're curious about John Walton's take, uh, somewhere in between Old Earth and Young Earth creationism, it's sort of like a different approach altogether. Take a listen to Podcast 152. That's all I've got time for today. Thanks so much for listening to the end here, and we'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.